Welcome to In the Isles, a movie and TV podcast. I'm James Rothwell. I'm Dan Acton. This week, we'll be talking about what we've been watching. We'll cover a little bit of real news. We have the return of conflicts of interest, where we'll decide who is the most underappreciated actor of all time. And for our main review, we're talking about the devil all the time. Can't talk about it all the time. Yeah, the film is called The Devil All the Time. Right. Okay. Saw the image on Netflix, didn't really read the title. Apologies. I discovered something this week that made me quite ashamed. I discovered the aspect ratio setting on my TV for the first time. In the whole six years that I've owned that TV, everything I've watched has been slightly zoomed in. How how have you not noticed? It must be fractional then. It is, yeah. Imagine a border around your TV about the width of your finger. Okay. That is how much has been missing from everything I've watched and everything I've played on PlayStation, on both broadcast television and on PlayStation. So last week when we were talking about I'm thinking of ending things and it was in a 4 by 3 ratio, you just went along with it, didn't you? You didn't even (laughs) realise. It would have looked wider than it should have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can't believe it. I think we need to go back and re-record all previous episodes. <laughs> well, let that be a lesson to the listening audience. Check your aspect ratio on your TVs. You could be consuming everything in completely the wrong way. Yeah. Do you have any life-changing moments to share? Mine's quite a shame-filled story, to be honest. But I wanted to pose the question to you as well. My, my boss the other week went out for a walk with his dog and his daughter. And he went out doing so, commando style. And in the process of doing this, he bent over at one point, I think it was to pick up a stick to throw for his dog, and split his shorts, which completely exposed his entire genitalia to the masses. And then he had to walk home. And he says, with his stuff tucked between his legs, which I can't can't imagine looks great from behind or, or in front to be honest but I, i've had similar occurrences i just wondered have you ever accidentally exposed yourself in public james <laughs> <laughs> no no only in my recurring nightmares fair enough i may have already told you this before but just that story in itself reminded me of i think it was just over a year ago this but me and my partner went to lloyd's bank to open up a giant bank account where I accidentally got my dick out in the middle of the bank. <laughs> and when, and obviously when it happened, I was like, oh my, oh my God, and probably made more of a scene than I should because the worst thing that I could do was draw attention to myself. And afterwards, my partner was like, what, how, how did that happen? And it was basically, you know, you become quite uncomfortable through a day, so I just needed to rearrange. So I had a rummage, but it stuck to my hand and fell over the belt. <laughs> Which her response was, what's going down there at all? Why, why is it in a position where it's sticking? What You dirty, dirty man. <laughs> I don't think that's going to improve our female <laughs> listener percentage. No, I completely agree. Shall we, shall we move on? Yes. What have Gem- you been... No, let's start with you. Okay, okay. Unless you don't want to. No, I'll start, I'll start. 
James, what has graced your television screen in a wrong aspect ratio this week? This week, I've watched All or Nothing Tottenham Hotspur on Amazon Prime. That is so funny that you've just mentioned this, because I was on the phone to my mate the other day, and he said, you and James hate football. And I said, oh, why? What we were talking about? And he said, oh, that all or nothing Tottenham Hotspur thing. And I said, we never reviewed that. But it turns out he's prophesied it. You've gone and watched it. How very strange. Well, maybe he's inverted himself through time. <laughs> and listened to the... I'm not going to think about Tenet again. All or nothing Tottenham Hotspur. I don't like football. I have very little respect for footballers and anyone involved in the business of football. But I looked through Amazon Prime and this was the only new thing that I could find that seemed like it would be good. So I watched it and let me tell you, I really enjoyed this, really enjoyed it. Amazon were given permission to set up some cameras all over the Tottenham Hotspur ground and they filmed them for the 2019-20 season. I have no allegiance to anyone, so I could watch this completely unbiased. Yes, this is clearly a puff piece. Tottenham Hotspur approved it. I can only assume that they have a final sign-off on the edit. It's like the wrestling WWE documentaries that I've watched. They don't show you the dirtiest stuff, and you know they aren't going to. So if you just don't expect it, you can enjoy it. Jose Mourinho, who becomes the manager in the first episode, he makes it, he's brilliant. He's swearing all the time. He keeps saying, big balls, big balls. That's how he hypes people up. When he's saying, come on, let's win this match. Let's be a good team. Let's be aggressive. Big balls, big balls. It's great. (laughs) The footballers themselves, as you would suspect, they have no personality at all. (laughs) I was going to ask you if you've changed your view after this. Obviously not. They were filmed for an entire year. The quirkiest content that could get out of them is both Deli Alley. One scene, he asks everyone what the favourite chocolate bar is. Another scene, they talk about when they're putting toothpaste on their toothbrush, do they wet the toothbrush, put on toothpaste, and then wet that again, and then put it in the mouth and have a discussion about that. Two scenes in this whole eight hours of content that's the only time you have footballers and this is where it becomes a puppy you have footballers sitting down talking about yeah you know people talk about footballers you've got loads of money you've got a nice car but for me you know it's about family it's about family i've got a family i'm doing it for my family we've all got families that doesn't make you special we've all got families that <laughs> are some kind of motivator that's not a unique or admirable characteristic but still, I, I held back my worst instincts and I just sat back and watched it and I enjoyed it. It's a good study, if anything, on leadership and, and teamwork because they go through a lot of struggles. There's all kind of injuries going on, which I obviously knew, knew nothing about because I don't follow football. But it is good. And something that also happens, you get to see the beginnings of the coronavirus pandemic happen. And this being cameras planted everywhere, you get to see the very relatable scenes that I'm sure everyone had of these football players and managers saying what's happening has it come over from italy what's going to be cancelled oh they've cancelled this they've cancelled that what's going to happen to us are we going to work from home well how are we going to figure this out when we're all working from home and doing webcam stuff it captures that moment what go on sorry i was going to ask do they ask what happens if we get furloughed am i going to feed my family on my pitiful wage (laughs) no they don't it just captures that moment in time forever which is quite interesting 
they are very careful not to show any full body shots of their cars. They show them driving a little bit, but they don't show their cars or their houses. They're keen, it seems, to not show how much money is involved with these people. It just shows them going to a food bank and giving out food, going to a school. That's where it gets a bit, uh, you're going too far. This is philanthropy marketing. But most of the time, it's just watching the actual operations of the club, and it's interesting. I believe if you're a fan of that, there's quite a few of those all or nothing documentaries to make your way through, isn't there? Is there a yeah. Barcelona one and a cricket one or something? I can't yeah, remember. and there's a Manchester City one and there's a All Blacks New Zealand rugby one as well. Oh, nice. I, I have always thought, ooh, maybe I'll give one of these a go. I think you may have finally persuaded me. Anything else? I've watched half of Ratched on Netflix. Oh, really, really been looking forward to this. Made my way 15 minutes into one episode last night. What do you think? I had high expectations, like you. Starring Sarah Paulson, who's brilliant. It's about this nurse, Ratchet's rise to prominence, it seems, within this hospital. And I'm struggling because I'm not quite sure what it is really about. I've not watched other Ryan Murphy shows. Ryan Murphy is the writer of this, and he's written American Horror Story. There's one user review on Rotten Tomatoes that just says, someone please stop Ryan Murphy. That was funny. Got a lot of style, some nice bright colours that I can see in full glory with my proper aspect ratio settings. It's got style, got these bits of over-the-top music, like it's a horror homage type thing going on so it's fun but i'm halfway in i'm not sure who i'm rooting for or what's really happening i don't think i'm enjoying it it seems a bit like everyone is evil and maybe it's just a big joke because nothing is that serious even you got people being boiled alive in the world of this program it seems that the only available mental illnesses are sexual deviance and psycho killer and that is getting a bit repetitive so I'm keen to see what you think. I, I, like I say, 15 minutes I've seen, and I thought from the offset, wow, yeah, this is a Ryan Murphy show. Just stylistically, it's got his name all over it. But it's in my wheelhouse. You just said you were getting psycho killer and sexual deviancy fatigue. That's exactly what I'm looking for. So <laughs> <laughs> anything else? Off the back of our conversation last week, I watched Social Dilemma, the anti-social media documentary. Go on. Are you going to disagree with me? I agree completely with what you said. There's the dramatisation of things that is a bit over the top. I understood why they did it, is to make it accessible, but I would have liked to hear a bit more in depth from these experts and academics and defectors from the company's about them and not see this drama it is a campaign piece it's one-sided so my instinct is to question it even though i agree with everything that gets said my instinct was to question it and wonder well what is the other side of this and i started asking questions of myself like if the problem is fake news and misinformation who is it that these campaigners want to decide the truth do they want to decide the truth yeah see what you're saying what's the alternative and advertising is not new. Targeted ads online are not limited just to social media. But that wasn't really said. It was just a non-stop scare. 
piece, even though I agreed with all of it, I agreed with it, just would have liked them to throw out a little bit of disagreement, even if they were just going to shut it down straight away. It was good. <laughs> it was good. Sounds, sounds it. <laughs> it was good. I just have a instinctive reaction when I know that they're putting out a message very aggressively, even if it's a message that I agree with. I just can't help myself. I, I do do think that's fair. I I didn't even pick up on that to be honest, because I was I was swept along, bought into the message. Um, but you're right, it is completely one sided. I hadn't even picked up on that, probably because I wanted to buy into it so much because I'm I'm in agreement with a lot of the the themes that it brings up and the issues. So And so am I. I'm in agreement as well. No, I wasn't saying you weren't. Let's not this isn't conflicts of interest. It's not conflict. We both think that it's bad. It is bad. It is it, they're right to present as a nightmare because it is the issues documentary itself is good just to be clear yeah what have you been watching oh i've been watching a variety of things let's start with des on itv you watched any of it you know what it is no is it a sequel to kez (laughs) (laughs) yep it's about his equally winged brother des no this is a factual drama about British serial killer Dennis Nielsen, who killed 15 men throughout the late 70s and 80s. And this is about the police investigation. Into that, not much of an investigation to find out who he is, because that's established within the first five minutes. Given my proclivity towards the macabre, this is obviously something that I wanted to watch, and I've been looking forward to it ever since I heard about it. I know quite a lot about Dennis Nielsen and his crimes, but seeing it dramatised just weirdly adds a whole new layer of reality to it because you just hear about what he's done. This is, and, and there's not that much of a visual depiction of what he has done. It's more the description behind it in the programme, but you're actually hearing it through his words. Nothing delivers quite a dramatic punch like the portrayal of Nielsen himself here, uh, who's played by David Tennant. He is awesome in this. He's enigmatic, he's calculated, he's brilliant in a twisted way and downright creepy as fuck. He's not your typical Hannibal Lecter type. It's not that sort of portrayal. He's off-putting and disturbing in his matter-of-factness about the whole thing and his delivery of these details around the murders. It's, it's just said in such an arbitrary way. It just puts you off. It's weird. Were it not for the words coming out of his mouth, though, he acts just like you and I. He seems like a completely normal person on the face of it. It is a performance that's just got BAFTA written all over it, but not in an annoying way. It's right, no, he is actually really good. Daniel Mays is good in this as well. To be fair, he's good in just about everything I've ever seen him in. But he's like the everyman detective here who stumbles into the case of an absolute lifetime. Just imagine you're this detective and you're investigating a singular murder case and you turn up to the suspect's flat and say, where's the body, mate? Oi, where's the body, mate? It's not Australian, don't know what that is. And he just responds, in the cupboard. That's all in the opening five minutes, I'm not spoiling it. Then he gets into the car, he takes the suspect into the car to take him to the station and because of the overwhelming stench in his flat, he asks... Are there any other bodies? Probably not expecting his response to be, oh, about 14 or 15 or so. Like, it's just like, imagine that, imagine that. That is just crazy. My partner said when we were watching this, this isn't very interesting, is it? I know who did it. This is not a mystery thriller. It's not what it's about. It's not who done it. This is a drama about capturing this serial killer. Well, that's 
already done within the first 10 minutes, as I say, but more about what goes on after that fact and interviewing him and what sort of details he comes out with. It's really, really good. I have enjoyed it. I have only watched two of the three episodes, but given that it's only three, that's the relatively quick watch and I would recommend it. My one criticism about this is that Dennis Nielsen was a homosexual who killed men and it doesn't explore any of the homophobia of the time at all. There's not even a hint of it in the program. And I know that we're in a different age now. It's 2020 and people are a lot more progressive, but it just struck me as being completely inauthentic that it's not even mentioned at all. That I found problematic but that aside it's well directed fine performances really riveting drama and as i say highly recommend sounds good i'm three episodes as well a quick watch like you say indeed what else have you been watching next i'll keep short and sweet because it's 20 years old and a lot of people might have seen this but don't know if you've seen or are a fan but louis Theroux's released a new documentary on bbc iplayer called Life on the Edge, where he revisits a lot of his documentaries from the past and interviews people that he spoke to previously. Are you a fan of Louis Theroux? Absolutely, yeah. Good, good. So I thought I would say, by all means, if you're familiar with Louis Theroux, watch Life on the Edge. But if you're not, go back and watch Weird Weekends, which is also available on BBC iPlayer. What's really interesting about Weird Weekends, and especially revisiting it now, is that a lot of the things that he touches on don't exist within the world today, or at least not to the extent that they did then, whether it's the porn industry and the VHSification of it all. That's not there anymore. We're all online. Or perhaps like the massive impact of infomercials in the late 90s, especially in America. Obviously, it's still going on, but not to that extent at all. Uh, It's just really interesting to see life through this lens in a world where we're on the cusp of the millennium. And that's whether it's from people being involved in swinging or more shockingly, like, and I'd never seen this episode until this week, like a neo-Nazi white supremacist band who sing songs of hatred, fronted by two pre-teenage girls. Have you seen that episode? No, I've not seen it. It is horrendous. It's absolutely horrendous. And what's good about Life on the Edge is that he speaks to these girls later on, 25 years later, and they're like, oh my God, what were we thinking? We're so sorry. It was all our mum's fault, pretty much. I won't, I won't go into any more detail. It's just if you like episodic documentaries and you like a wide range of topics, Weird Weekends is a very good thing to watch, and that's available on BBC iPlayer. Thank you. Thank you. Any more? Lastly, and I've kept it till last because it's my absolute favourite of the week, is The Third Day, which is a HBO Max production and is available on Now TV. Have you heard anything about this? I'm sorry to keep asking the same question, but have you? No, I've not. I'm, I'm intrigued by the level of excitement, though. So I'm going to grab the synopsis straight from Wikipedia. This is a series which chronicles the individual journeys of a man and woman who arrive on a mysterious island at different times. And Jude Law stars in this first episode. During a walk through a forest, he stumbles upon the attempted suicide of a girl. And subsequently, he saves her, drives her back to her hometown. It just so happens that her hometown is the island of... I'm going to get this wrong now because my geography is terrible. It's either Osea or Ossia, the island of Ossia. Do you know what I mean? It's off Essex. No, no idea, sorry. I'm not going to be a knob and tell you to cut that, 
let me appear to be an idiot. I don't know how you say it, even though it's mentioned in the show. So you can only reach this island via like a spiraling road that's connected to the mainland, which becomes submerged during high water. This is the perfect location to set this story of a tale of an outsider being cut off from society, living amongst a religious community. Because once Jude Law arrives, a series of unfortunate incidents means he misses his opportunity after he delivers the girl to leave the island and is forced to stay the night all the while dealing with his own personal dilemmas, which I won't go into because I don't want to spoil it. Finding himself stranded, he's completely hamstrung. He's no phone reception or means of resolving his issues back home. And the story develops from there. So the cinematography in this is absolutely outstanding. It really captures the beauty of the place in which it's filmed. And it has this almost like too perfect otherworldly aesthetic to it. There's lots of shots of the surrounding countryside on the island. And the grass is like the greenest green that you can ever see. It could actually be my TV settings, to be quite honest. But it really, really pops. And maybe that's a purposeful, not too subtle message to convey the idea that the grass isn't always greener on the other side. Because despite these stunning settings and the location, outward appearances, just like last week's I'm Thinking of Ending Things, are not all they seem to be. There's simultaneously like a nightmarish quality to this island. There's like a local pub that is owned by the couple that he's brought the daughter back to. And it looks like a medieval barn in its interior. There's like an old-timey quality to it that feels really weirdly juxtaposed against like the modern day. And I suppose in a similar vein, you have like weird villainous residents that are in stark contrast to like this picture of tranquility and they just help establish like a deep sense of foreboding. There are hints to some possible supernatural goings on. Is there some witchcraft afoot? Is it a cult? Why does a mysterious boy appear to Jude Law only to disappear into thin air several times? He's not called Jude Law, by the way, in this. I just forget what his name is. There's mention of a festival that's taking place on the island, which gives you vibes of like The Wicker Man or last year's Midsummer. if you watch that. Did you watch that, by the way? No, I didn't. I wish I had, though. It's a slog. It's like two hours and 40 minutes long. Sorry, I was only laughing there because there's a bloke from work. I don't know if I told you this story before. It won't spoil it, this. He took his kid, who's like 10, to go and watch, <laughs> to go and watch Spider-Man Homecoming. It's proper graphic. Like there's a bit where a rock gets dropped on a guy's head and it and it just it shows you everything. It's probably the worst bit in the film. And he walked into the wrong screen with his kid just as that moment happened. And he was like, Is this Spider-Man? What the fuck? <laughs> it's just funny. Sorry. There's such a profound atmosphere and an air of mystery to both the story and the landscape with which it's set in that by the end of the first episode, you're left with this overwhelming sense of dread that has been simmering away throughout the episode. Personally, I felt like I was trapped in this bizarre place, falling under this spell of the seemingly perfect community. I mentioned it with a synopsis at the start, and this is why I'm really excited about this programme. But it's apparently about a man and a woman who find themselves on the island. Now, there's an outsider woman who appears in the first episode, but having read more about this the woman the plot synopsis is referring to is actually Naomi Harris, who does not appear within this episode whatsoever. And again, reading up on this, because I I wanted to know more about it, this series will be split into three parts, which will be Summer, which we're seeing now with Jude Law, 
autumn and winter, and it's suggested that winter is where Naomi Harris's story arc comes in. The even more intriguing part about this is that it's reported that the autumn section will revolve around a one-off live theatrical event, which I'm assuming is the festival that they're suggesting is going to take place. But given coronavirus, I don't know how they're going to pull that off. But that just really excites me. I know Coronation Street do this with the live episodes. (laughs) But the level of talent that you see within this episode from the actors to as I say like cinematography and direction I can only imagine what that might look like if somebody asked me what do you want out of a tv show because I'm so weird and I like really dark stuff I'd give them this first episode and I'd say give me more of that please because I loved it so far and I know it's really early doors I've watched one (laughs) singular episode signs are good this is dark, mysterious, unsettling, and more than a wee bit disturbing. And like I say, given the setup of this and the fact that it's aiming for something very ambitious, I cannot wait to see where it goes next. I just pray to God that this does not end up being another Lovecraft country and I come back to you next week and say, yeah, I've switched off. I'm not going to watch the second episode. It's terrible. I'm definitely going to watch that. Very good, uh, good review. Like I say, it really is what I love, and I'm quite an odd character, so it might not be everyone's cup of tea, but yeah, please do. I'd be interested to hear what you think. Okay. What a varied selection of stuff we've got there. Apart from Ratchet, I think I might have brought things down a little bit with that, my (laughs) negativity. But good stuff. Shall we talk about some news? Let's do it. It's the real thing. It is now... Real, real news, news. Real news. I don't think anything's been delayed. Mm. Not that I know of. Nothing important anyway. No. So what have you got? Good news for all horror fans out there. We're all going to be stuck indoors during this impending Halloween. But fear not, because Amazon has just the right amount of content to send a shiver up your housebound spine. Because Blumhouse Pictures, famous for such franchises as The Conjuring, Paranormal Activity, The Purge, Insidious, and plenty of other decent singular horror fur, are bringing us four fresh new horror films throughout October, exclusive to Amazon Prime. Marketed under the collective title, Welcome to the Blumhouse, they've got four offerings here. And I'm excited for this. I'm a horror fan, you're not so much. But... Are they just going to take a cinematic shit on Amazon and dump a load of stuff that they just couldn't get anyone to buy? That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> what's, what's your more than likely cynical view on this? Did they do Sharknado as well? No, no, they're, they're not quite that drag end of Hollywood. But I might be mixing them up with someone else. In terms of the poor back catalogue they've got, they brought out in the last few years, Truth Order which was panned by critics. Fantasy Island, which I ashamedly actually quite enjoyed. And the absolute waste of Octavia Spencer, Ma. I don't know if you're familiar with any of them, but they were not perceived very well, shall we say. But they have brought out quite a lot of good films that are not part of those franchises that I mentioned before. So do you want me to give like this like a sentence of like, yeah. what they're about? Let's hear it. Let's hear it. So first off, and these are we- released weekly, there's Black Box, which is about a man taking an experimental VR treatment in the wake of the car crash that is, has killed his wife, which sounds very Black Mirror-y. 
There's then The Lie, which is about a teenage girl who seemingly kills her best friend and the parents try and cover it up and then that kind of spirals out of control. There's Evil Eye, which is an idyllic couple and apparently one of them is not that ideal and there's more to them meets the eye. And then there's Nocturne, which is about rival twin sisters, a prestigious music school. And then there's the death of a student, which may be mixed up in some supernatural things. So that's what's coming. Maybe they did plan to release it and make a bit of money, but maybe Amazon just gave them a sweet deal and said, look, you're not going to make any money. We'll take them off you. Possibly. The weird one on this list, by the way, is the lie that when I looked it up on IMDb, it was actually made in 2018 but it's got a good cast. It's got Peter Skarsgård, Joey King, and Miriel Enos in it. So quite well-established actors, but it's been sat on the shelf for two years, which is a bit strange. That's what made me think I'm on the right lines here. Mm, it's not a good sign. No, no. Any news from you? Sue Barker is gone from Question of Sport. She was brilliant in that. She's probably one of the most underrated actresses of all time. Um... I, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I don't. Well, we don't like sport for the most part, do we? So it's no wonder we don't care. Should we move on? Yes, let's move on. What are you talking about, yeah? I very much disagree Shut up, with yeah. that. Two. You do not have good opinions. What an idiot. I hate everything. You can't even speak. Nothing you say makes sense. Conflicts of interest. By popular demand, we're bringing back conflicts of interest where we go head-to-head on the chosen topic of the week. We're going to pick who is the most underappreciated actor and we'll decide who is wrong. The person that is wrong will be punished by watching a piece of trash on Amazon Prime. Have I got the bad boy for you as well? I can't wait. Who's going to go first? I'm not precious about it. Whatever you think. Would you rather go first? We're in alphabetical order. Mine begins with a J. What does yours begin with? A J. Oh, J-A. J-A, yeah. No, it's not. It's not. <laughs> um, mine's an L, so... You what, J-L? It. No, I was lying from the offset, so it's mine's beginning with L. Oh, right, okay, I'll go first then. My pick for an underappreciated actor is Jared Harris. I'm going to find this hard to sentence you because I don't know who he is. <laughs> Well, I didn't know his name either, which to me was an indication that he was indeed underappreciated because even I, appreciating his work, didn't know the man's name. He has appeared in Chernobyl. He was the main actor in Chernobyl. It was a colossal performance. Unbelievable, this man, Jared Harris, in Chernobyl. He's also appeared in The Expanse in a supporting role. And he's been in and out of the crown as Queen Elizabeth's father with a speech impediment whose name has slipped my mind. And I'm sure he will be excellent in The Foundation as well, which will be released on Apple TV, hopefully within the next thousand years. Where has he been all this time? I like him. And like I say, I had to look up his name. And he's so good that I didn't even realize he was in The Expanse because he does have such versatility maybe he's just selective with his roles but he should have more notable work because of the quality that's on show especially in chernobyl is so high i was surprised to see that that role in chernobyl only won 
the BAFTA, he didn't win all the other TV awards like Golden Globes and Emmys and Critics' Choice. The very fact that I don't have much to say shows <laughs> that he's underappreciated. We need to see more Jared Harris on our screens. <laughs> uh, I love the fact that you sum up your argument by saying you don't have anything else to add to the argument and that's why you should win. <laughs> nice. Very clever. Okay. I no, I'm not I'm not gonna say that it gives you ammunition. My pick for the most underappreciated actor of recent times is none other than Lizzie Kaplan. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I'll tell you why I picked Lizzie Kaplan, because if I'm completely honest with myself, and this will not form your part of your ammunition, please. She just so happens to have appeared in things that I've watched recently. And it is an opinion that I've had in terms of she is very good, but she just does not have that level of star power. You don't hear people talking about her. But anyway, let me take you through a bit of her work. I was first introduced to Lizzie Kaplan back in the good old days when Mean Girls was one of the best comedies around. She shows within that film that she has comedic chops. She has some of the best lines in the film. She plays the goth best friend to Lindsay Lohan. And I'm sure we're all quite glad to see that she's made a better career from Mean Girls than Lindsay Lohan has. Things went in the right direction there. Anyway, that's comedy. Then a show that I was very, very impressed with at the time, but unfortunately fell off. And I think I was in the third season. But Masters of Sex with Lizzie Kaplan and Michael Sheen. Did you watch any of that? No, but I did hear it was good. I'm disappointed that I've missed out. Missed the boat. Yeah, this is completely from memory. I think it's set around the 50s and 60s, and it's Michael Sheen and her revolutionising the whole attitude towards sex through analysis and, and discovery and interviewing people and finding out, you know, what what is this sexual revolution that's going on? And let's make it heard. Let's let people in on what's going on with people's most basic desires. And she completely holds her on against Michael Sheen, who is a very, very, very fine actor indeed. It's a very emotional role. Uh, there's a lot of demands of her as an actress. Watch it. Don't want to spoil it, but you'll, you'll see what I mean. And that also helps if I'm vague to win this argument. Truth Be Told is another example of this. So I think I vaguely may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but this is an Apple TV exclusive, Truth Be Told. It is a mystery drama that centers on a, a murder and she is one of the central characters in it in which she plays twin sisters and the neat thing about this is not only is she playing both roles but one has an english accent and one has an american accent and there's really really besides the accent nice subtleties in her performance for each character and it makes you appreciate what her dramatic range is because they do develop completely different personalities and the traits of both are very different so you can see that she is capable of playing very 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 different roles so she's good in that and then another one of recent times was castle rock so she was a central character in season two where she had the unbelievable task of outdoing kathy bates in that role but she nails it absolutely nails it she's portraying being mentally disturbed she's an overly protective mother figure and she's does some pretty horrendous things within this program and i mean horrendous but you the way in which she strikes the balance between being evil and you still having a sense of empathy for her situation just shows what she is capable of 
the series actually hinges on you rooting for her despite some of her actions, and I think she does completely carry that off at all. So, you know, those are quite recent examples of things that, that she's been in from a television point of view. So you can see that her career is not actually, you know, in doubt. She's doing very well for herself, but without the exception of Now You See Me Too, in which she does play quite a main role, she's quite absent from mainstream Hollywood. I think she was in Cloverfield as well, actually. But as I say, I'm sure there's more deserved actors out there, but given what I've seen somebody in recently and me being bowled over by the performances, I just think Lizzie Kaplan fits the bill completely. You've wrong-footed me because we've got complete opposites. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, we do, we do. Just a complete opposite. And I'm in a position where in the current climate, in the current cultural moment that we're in, I'm defending an old white man who is the son of legend Richard Harris, so I therefore see. can be said to come from privilege. So what, what, what am I going to do here? This will never happen again, but I'm going to do you a favour, James, because who can be more underappreciated than the person who we did not even realise their name? <laughs> We've seen him in loads of stuff, didn't know who he was. At least people know who Lizzie Kaplan is. Yeah. Lizzie Kaplan at least has a name, a name (laughs) value, (laughs) and is still has a path to become absolutely brilliant. But Jared Harris, why has he not been propped up more? Why has he not been given more roles? Chernobyl is such a towering, awesome performance in a prestige program, but we don't even know the man's name. And even though I give you that little morsel of something to work with there, Jared Harris has won an award, has he? Yeah, a BAFTA for yeah. Best Actor in TV. Yeah, Lizzie Kaplan hasn't, so I would say that makes her more underappreciated. Yeah, so then by definition, she is not appreciated. It's like a game of chess, that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, you, you've got me, you've got me. Oh, Brilliant! I thought I was on the brink of disaster. You conceded now. So guess what, James? You know what you're going to watch? What? What am I watching? Assassins 33 AD on Amazon Prime. Oh, my God. I don't (laughs) like the sound of that at all. I think you will love this. I'm not looking forward to that at all. I'm just suspicious of that title. I'm not going to tell you any more about it. Come back next week and tell us what your thoughts were. Okay. In the course of making my pick, I looked up, naturally, the most underrated actors. I found a website, Ranker.com, and saw that the number one underrated actor is Alan Rickman. What a load of bollocks. If you're the number one underrated actor, you are not underrated because you're number one on a list of actors. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a list that immediately... <laughs> nullifies itself by having these actors rise to the top because of their popularity and be declared the most underrated. (laughs) Alan Rickman, Gary Oldman, Sam Elliott, Willem Dafoe, these are like big names (laughs) that are the most underrated. Yeah, I was going to ask you, was it a most underground actor because of that, but... Oh, come on. (laughs) My guy, Jared Harris, number 43. Oh, he's in there then. Isn't, so what, uh, what was it, out of 50? Out of 101. 
So more evidence that you're wrong because he wasn't at the bottom of the list of the most underappreciated actors. But neither was Lizzie Kaplan, I imagine. So I should keep my mouth shut. No, Lizzie Kaplan is not on this all male list. (laughs) (laughs) Any honourable mentions, James? Apart from Alan Rickman, which it sounds like neither of us agree with. Jennifer Connelly, maybe. Yes, Mm. she's won an Oscar and she's had a long and successful career. I think she's at, should be at the level of, you know, Nicole Kidman and Sandra Bullock for lead roles in big movies, but she isn't quite there. Maybe it's by choice. I don't know, but she popped into my head. What about you, honourable mentions? I had this guy in mind, but then felt that I'd not seen him in enough stuff to put him on my list. I just know that everything I've seen him in, he completely like goes for it and he really delivers. But he appeared on a list and I thought, you know what, I'm going to shove him in for that reason. And it's Ben Foster. Angel from X-Men 3. Oh, no, no, no. Look, look him up. You'll know he's been in loads of stuff, but he's just always one of those people who he's a secondary or third character. But when he commits, he commits and he leaves like a lasting imprint on your brain because he just does deliver outstanding performances but in my eyes never really seems to <clears throat> be the man who's in the central role he's very yeah. good he was angel in x-men last time was he all oh, right okay proved wrong to be honest i'm looking at his wikipedia page i've not seen any of these films that he's been in well i've seen pandorum and he was good in that i'm, I'm joking i've seen more than that speaking of actors acting it's time for our main review hello i'd like to order an opinion Please. This film is new, fresh point of view. Hold me sit back, this is a fact. We in the aisles, here are some aisles. Thoughts in sync, tell you what to think. I'll listen to you, but please don't rap again. Speak of the devil, all the time remaining in this episode will be given to this week's big film, The Devil All the Time. I used the title in the sentence. How and why people from two points on a map without even a straight line between them can be connected is at the heart of our story and knock them stiff. You ever think about how we ended up orphans living in the same house? I know what my daddy did. Some people would say it's just dumb luck. You take pictures? I do. I see a smile pretty enough to photograph, that is. Others would tell you it was God's plan. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That ain't no preacher. He's as bad as they got on the damn radio. When people look back on it, they had no other choice. In a time of division, hatred and uncertainty, when the world is trying to pull itself back from the brink, Netflix releases a searing story of middle America replete with evil religious institutions, gun violence, sexual violence, and corrupt authority figures. A story of family dying, of community collapsing, and hopelessness. But it was this or cuties, and I'm happy with our choice. Hashtag cancel Netflix, but only after you've listened to this episode, and next week's episode, and possibly the week after that. (sighs) IMDP summary. Sinister characters converge around a young man devoted to protecting those he loves in a post-war backwards town teeming with corruption and brutality. James, what did you think of The Devil all the time? It's based on a book that I have not read, but 
I've realised that I like this genre, the name of which I've since discovered is Southern Gothic. I usually like things in this area. The plot was a bit muddled and unnecessarily jumps back and forward in time for the first 46 minutes, which I did not like. And that makes it unclear what the plot actually is. Characters are introduced and then disappear from the story. I didn't think it ran smoothly because of those time jumps and the characters seeming to not be connected with each other. It was hard to find a through line to attach myself to. There's talk of Sebastian Stan's character needing to win an election that never really goes anywhere. It feels at times like a series of vignettes about everyone in the world being bad. It is 18 rated and it is nice to see a truly adult film on Netflix that is not trying to please everyone with algorithm determined content. But it can seem a little bit tame at times for the dark content that it's talking about through the whole runtime. It reminded me of True Detective, which I absolutely loved season one only because there's social decay everywhere and there's this stink of evil that follows people around, but it doesn't evoke the setting or characters quite enough. Things seemed a bit too clean and well lit at times, which might have been intentional. I think they were intentionally not going too far, but I wanted more. The casting is good, which is clear just from the list of names of people that are in it. Robert Pattinson is creepy AF. Tom Holland is good. Everyone is good without exception. Harry Melling from Harry Potter and the Old Guard, he tries really hard and I felt like you can see him trying to do an over-the-top preacher thing, which was a bit distracting. I don't know what this film is about. There are serious issues there, but is it saying anything about them or is it just two hours of people being infected by evil and being bad? I don't know if I'm going to recommend this or not, and it might only be at the end of our conversation after we've worked through it that I'll be able to make a decision. I just don't know. So I'm very interested, and it's imperative that I hear what you think about this film. I'll start off by saying I did enjoy this. That enjoy might be the wrong word. Morbidly fascinating, almost. From the opening credits, the music is really ominous, and you know that you're in store for quite a murky tale that is rather unsettling. It's a story of revenge, religion, violence. I think it's leaning towards the idea of the sins of the father as well being passed down through the generations. From a positive point of view, I thought it perfectly, for me, encapsulated the time period. I didn't live in the 50s, as we mentioned, for other similar episodes so I can't quite judge but it felt aesthetically like it it nailed that I did feel like I was transported back in time you mentioned it the acting is great across the board Bill Skarsgård I was most happy with because everything I've seen him in up until this point he's just played creepy weird bloke and I'm not saying there aren't elements of that in his character here but he is more normal I think it just felt like a bit of a different role for him so that was nice to see Robert Patterson, completely agree. I thought he was amazing in this. And he's been in enough films now to fully escape the shadow of Twilight. But for me, this really was one of his best performances. Tom Holland as well. He does feel like Spider-Man with a Southern accent in this. I don't think he's stretching too far, but I was more willing to give him a chance as Nathan Drake, something that we 
discussed a few weeks ago. He's been cast in Uncharted. With the exception of one character in particular, I felt that it was quite refreshing that it didn't bash you over the head with gender politics in this film. So the time period, I would imagine, lends itself to a certain sense of like patriarchy and, and male dominance. But I don't feel like you got that much of this. There is one character where you, you see a bit of that, but, but nothing you know, completely bashing you over the head. It does juggle a great deal of characters and themes, and it is ambitious in that sense. But in spite of all that, I felt quite similar to you. I feel like it tries to pack in too many storylines. There's like the murderous couple that, I'll be honest, three quarters in, I'm like, what is the relevance of this at all? I do feel that it suffered because of that. It just doesn't allow itself breathing room to explore any of the characters in real depth. There's just too much going on. And one thing that I definitely think contributed to this as well, nearly an hour in, the actors portraying the protagonist change and the protagonist himself changes which I just felt was a bit like, what's going on here? It's a story about a lot of things. I 100% agree with you. Despite it being a lot about a lot of things, I don't think it's got a lot to say about any of them. I struggled with the message like you did, but I felt like it was uh, some sort of condemnation against religion and how it brings out the worst in people. Like they've no real goals or aspirations. They just simply exist. And it almost felt like it was a... Like an exploration of like post-wartime existentialism, fighting for the meaning in life, but not actually discovering the answer. Which is weird because if, if it is about that, it didn't feel concerned with the history of the time. It doesn't give you any of that background historically to set the scene. It's a pretty bleak world that they all inhabit. Seems like a complete time without hope. And I was just left a bit confused as to what the messaging was at the end, as I say. But one of the most confusing things in this is there is a scene featuring Vic's Vaporub, which seemingly has not changed its packaging for 60 years. I noticed the Vic's Vaporub as well. It was the most relatable <laughs> moment of the film. <laughs> Do you think I'm off in my interpretation? Which part? That it is supposed to be like, oh, look at post-war America. What a mess it is. And they're all trying to find out what the meaning of life is in, in this new yeah I thought that's what was going on as well because it was set between the two wars wasn't it so it was mm. like post world war Two. what is America who is America why is America and then before they've even got chance to figure that out Tom Holland's off to the next war possibly he talks about so it's like they can't really figure out what's going on and who they are pretty interesting idea that from you mm. I'm saying it's your idea I feel like in my summary, I've been a bit too overwhelmingly negative. I do agree with the positive things that you've said. I think there was a consistent tone to it, at least. Unlike some of the other stuff we've talked about, it hits that tone straight away with the music and the narrator. The narrator, who is also the author of the book. Oh, did not know that, because I was going to ask you that in spoilers. Who is the narrator? Why do we never find out who he is? Doesn't matter, I suppose. I was expecting to find out at the end in a spectacular reveal what he would say. And then I did this. It was me all along narrating. I didn't do that. Yeah, he's the author, which obviously has no impact at all on the story. What did you think of the narrator in this film? I didn't mind it. I didn't find it distracting. It wasn't overly used to the point of being annoying. Whether it actually benefited the film or was necessary, 
is a different question. I feel the fact that we feel that it doesn't have much of a message behind it highlights the fact that the narrator isn't serving much of a purpose, maybe. Yeah, maybe if anyone could have helped to link it all together, it could have been the narrator, but that didn't happen. I think he spoke unnecessarily sometimes, like when the narrator said, Lenora would come to visit her mother's grave every Sunday and kneel down. And the other guy was wearing a denim cap and a denim jacket. He was (laughs) folding his arms. It was cloudy. We can see that. We can see that that's happening. That was, there was a few times like that where I thought, we do really need this. Yeah. At the start of the film, I'll talk about this before we're in spoilers. It introduces the geography of the setting. It says Pickle Sniff, or whatever it's called, is here. And then Mead is here. And it's two hours drive away. And then that's this far away from this other place. And I thought that would be important, the geography. And I was focused on that, but I don't think the geography came into it at all. It's another detail that was introduced, but didn't go anywhere. It didn't really matter where they were. They might as well have been in a small town. I, I agree. I think maybe if you are American or from that region, the throwaway comments to towns and locations that they visit across the course of the film might make that maybe a bit more impactful, maybe. Because you've seen that map, you know these things are going to crop up and then you just draw your attention back to that image of it later on when you start to see where they visit through. I don't know. Strange uh, choice. I agree. Yeah. Before we go into spoilers, ask the usual question. Daniel, would you recommend The Devil All The Time? I'm somewhat conflicted because a fundamental thing for a film to do is to communicate a message at the end of it, even if it is something that is open to interpretation, which I suppose you could argue this is, but it just feels too open to interpretation. And I'm not saying I needed it completely delivered to me on a plate, but I would have liked a bit more clarity as to what the director's aiming for. That being said, given the dark subject matter, I was not bored at any point throughout this film. I was entertained throughout what is quite a demanding running time, two hours, 18 minutes. And I would say, I mentioned it at the beginning, it's morbidly fascinating. If you want to watch something a bit different, yes, I would recommend this. James, what about you? The message is unclear. The structural problems were difficult for me, but it does hold a consistent tone. The performances are good for the whole 2018 minutes. So I'm going to say yes, only just. So safe to say a lukewarm recommend from the both of us. Yes. Proceed with caution. Proceed with caution. And shall we proceed deeper into the final segment of the podcast? Spoilers for the devil all the time. Let's do it, boy. Bruce Willis. Real name is Tyler Durden. Sank at the end. Oh, thanks a lot. Spoilers. So the way things unfold is Tom Holland's character is orphaned eventually after 46 minutes. (laughs) And then his stepsister becomes involved with Robert Pattinson's preacher. She kills herself. Tom Holland kills the preacher, Robert Pattinson. He escapes. In the course of escaping, he murders a couple of serial killers. And then in the final scene, he murders the police officer. The serial killers are people that we also follow throughout the film. Like you've said previously, we just keep going back to these serial killer couple played by Jason. Jason Clark. 
and Riley Keogh. Yep, thank you. And we also cut back to the adventures of Sebastian Stan's police officer character, and they eventually collide in the end. So this problem that we've both got with the structure, it takes 46 minutes of jumping back and forth to kick things off with Tom Holland and Arvin Russell. But then even after one hour and seven minutes, it cuts back again to three months earlier. So the film sort of starts post-war, then you flash back to the war, then you flash back to when Tom Holland is a young boy. They set up that a little bit. Then you see the Leonora character, who's assaulted by Robert Pattinson and eventually kills herself, introduce her, another flashback. And that goes on for 46 minutes, but it's not a Christopher Nolan-style time-travelling puzzle film. It's just... I don't see why it couldn't have just been done chronologically. I think I think it could have been done chronologically, but I don't know whether it's having fallen victim to films such as Tenet and I'm thinking of ending things lately that I personally didn't struggle with that. It was just so much more linear than anything we've reviewed as of late <laughs> that, I, <laughs> that I was fine with it, but I can understand that it was probably a bit unnecessary because I mentioned it before, the guy who I assumed was going to be the protagonist, Bill Skarsgård's character, you're with him, as you said, for 46 minutes. And then it's seemingly out of nowhere, he kills himself. And it's, oh no, this is not the focus of the film. It's his son. And that was a bit jarring for me because I was actually quite invested in Skarsgård's performance. I liked what he was doing. And then suddenly, no, we're on to the next thing now. So I can understand that combined with that and the narrative structure, it was hard to pledge allegiance or emotional investment in anyone at that particular point. Yeah, I agree. And just to clarify, I wasn't struggling to follow what was going on. I'm not an idiot. (laughs) I'm saying that I'm very sensitive to the pace of a film. And when you're jumping back and forth and it's not building that much, it makes me less involved in what's going on. When you establish one set of characters... And then you say, okay, well, let's just establish Lenora's backstory, which is that her mother got stabbed in the neck by the insane preacher father, and then he went and got killed by the cuckold serial killers. Okay, now we'll, now we'll start it again. Yeah, I think... Oh, I've only seen it last night, so I should have a, a better memory of it, but I think it was structured in that way to have a bit of a dramatic impact when you realize how the characters relate to each other i don't think those payoffs to oh that person knows that person and that's how they're linking to that story and blah 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 i feel like that's all revealed within that section that you're talking about where it has been structured in such a way and i think if they'd have done it narratively you wouldn't have the payoff of they set the scene up where lenore's mother goes off and obviously meets an untimely death You don't know how at that minute. You don't actually know she's dead, but then further on, there's a callback. You see the same scene again, which then shows you exactly how she did meet a demise. And I don't quite know where I'm going with this point now. Yeah, I got what you're saying. There's payoffs to seeing things from a different perspective. I just, I don't think the payoffs are really there or worth it. I mean, you, you mentioned before spoilers about the characters not, linking together very well have i got that wrong yeah yeah i thought they did but i agree that the way in which it achieves that doesn't outweigh the necessity of you 
should be emotionally attached to a character and i think because of the decision to construct it in such a way it did suffer and i think that would have been a lot more useful than just having those payoffs yeah yeah i know what you mean because i guess there's three stories or there's three lines which is tom holland's character the cuckold serial killers jason clark and sebastian stan the policeman and i guess the idea is that they collide in the end tom holland yeah. kills them all but it doesn't seem like it's building towards that collision at all. It's just three completely unrelated tracks running parallel, all at an equal distance to each other. And then in the last 10 minutes, suddenly they all take a sharp turn and crash into each other. It's not this gradual, they're going to meet, it's all going to come together, they're all going to meet up, and it's all building up to this finale. That didn't happen. Yeah. I think. Did you notice the parallels of stories that go on here as well no so behavior of characters is mirrored through female characters as well so i thought like bill skarsgård solving his like anger through violence when he beats up the bullies who've tried being threatening towards his son tom holland his son then has the same sort of reaction in regards to his sister and what happens with her and and proceeds down the same path then you also get leonora reaching out to a man of God to give her like a, a sense of purpose, just like her mother did with the creepy one-dimensional dude from Old Guard. I thought there was a lot of repetition of that sort of behaviour in characters. That's good. I wish that I'd noticed that because I probably would have liked it a lot more. That's right. And you also get the repetition of the war, you know. Yeah. yeah it starts with the war, ends with Vietnam War. Yeah, it, yeah. Did, it did feel like it was communicating this like cycle of endless violence and poor decision-making, for lack of a better phrase. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the rot is too deep and it can never go away. Which answers a question I was thinking about. Why were there two preachers? If you're going to have a film about bad religion, why not just have one that we can follow all the way through? But I think you just answered that question, that the rot doesn't go away. It's institutional. It's not about one dodgy preacher. It just goes on and on. Yeah. I mean, I may have said that, but I think you put it in a lot more eloquent way than me, so thanks for <laughs> <laughs> The violence in this film. It's this matter-of-fact violence. Harry Melling, the priest, and Mia Wozikowska, they're just having a chat on the knees in the forest, and he just stabs her in the neck. And there's mm. no music, no crazy shots. It's just lying there on the ground with the neck bleeding, and it's done in such a matter-of-fact way. So I think that was good as a weird way to use. <laughs> weird word to use, but it was so matter-of-fact, the violence. But at times, it seemed like it wasn't violent enough because these serial killers who were chopping men up and then killing them and taking pictures of it, it didn't show that much. It had a quick cut to a guy that had had his balls blown off and then cut back, and then the narrator said, the sick fuck it was almost like it was trying to be funny so i didn't get what was going on with the violence sometimes it was matter of fact sometimes it was just flashing to it gruesomely what did you think about the violence here i mean we've mentioned it nearly every episode i'm a glutton for a bit of violence and a bit of blood and i won't say that anything in this film really shocked me but i personally didn't feel like it was tame and i don't know whether that's more it's not just violent imagery in this film but there's a lot of just disturbing shit that goes on that kind of did have a lasting impact with me so for example like the scene with harry potter dude <laughs> <getting his name laughs> again, when he 
pause the spiders over his face, for example, is not violent, but it did shock me and it kind of got under my skin. And I think tonally the creepiness of it did infect me. And I think that's why I've probably walked out of my living room because it's not a cinema screen thinking that it was more graphic than it actually was. Yeah. You're right, because you're right. It is quite tame when... I mean, it is a brutal film, really. There's a lot of death in here, and they could have really took that to town, couldn't they? And and they didn't thinking about it more. Because they talk about chopping people up and putting them inside suitcases, but that's never seen. Maybe that's what they were going for with a lot of the stuff, is that you don't need to see any of it just to talk about it in the overwhelmingly bleak tone does enough to make you think, oh, this is just awful. This is an awful world and awful things are happening. I feel like it backs that up by not having a glimmer of light at the end of this tunnel either. It really is a film without any hope whatsoever. For me, that's what I took away from it. I didn't see any, oh, maybe he'll go on to have a family and do that. It was like, no, we're all doomed. What a terrible world it is. And that was pretty much the sum of it. So I don't know, maybe that amplifies that a bit. I thought Riley Keogh's character, Sandy, there was a glimmer of hope there because she appears to be reporting herself to the police. She calls someone, I guess it was the police, to say there's a body at this place, you know, in a suitcase. And she seems to be having a change of heart. And of all the characters in this story, she seemed to be the only one with some internal conflict or drama or arc going on. Mm. But she just ends up dead, so that's the end of that. Yeah. I didn't think she was doing that, to be honest. I I thought she did have a conscience for what they'd done, but she purely wanted his body to be found and not for it to rot away, and that was the end of it. I don't think she wanted to be caught. That was just what I took from it, but might be wrong. Okay, fair enough. I wanted to ask you something. I think this is explained later on, but he shoots Robert Pattinson, and then he's that concerned with finding the bullet, and I thought, hang on a minute. How far along are forensics in this time? Like, why is he that bothered? And I think there is a line later on where it says, oh, they knew he had a Luger pistol. So in fact, I think I've just answered my own question. But I found found it odd. (laughs) I think it's not forensics, but ballistics that they can do to trace the weaponry. That's the word that I was looking for. But yeah, I I didn't, again, because CSI was a revelation to me in 1999. I thought ballistics was a new thing then. So there you go. Yeah. They also discovered a note on Robert Patterson's body, it seemed. I didn't notice that. It looked like Spider-Man had written a note to say, this man is a paedophile rapist, and then left it on his body. I don't know if that was what was going on or not. So jumping to the end, all storylines collide when Tom Holland, Arvin Russell, is in the car of the cuckold serial killers. He kills them both when he realises what's going on. Sebastian Stan's character, the policeman, chases... Arvin down to his old family home. He's killed. Spider-Man gets in a truck and drives off and wonders what the future will hold. He just kills everyone. Like you say, he kills everyone. So what is, what's going on there? If we go back to what we were saying before, though, if it is aiming for this ongoing vicious cycle of violence and, and the rot that you spoke of, I suppose that does completely honour what it's going for there. For him to do anything otherwise would would not thematically convey that, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And if that's the message then, that's what it was. That's, that's what it was. It's quite a depressing one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The only real human relationships in this story that meant anything 
but again, weren't really explored, were for me between Tom Holland and his grandmother and also Tom Holland and his sister. But it's so quickly developed because of the fact that we've had this actual actor change with who's portraying Bill Skarsgård's son. I'm really sorry, I should know the character names, but I don't. If you've seen it, you, you know what I'm talking about. That again, it just didn't have that impact. And even with me saying about Tom Holland and his grandmother, I think the only reason why I said there's, there's a hint of a relationship between them is the fact that they don't try and kill each other. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that to me, after this film, marks the sign of a good relationship. <laughs> yes, yeah. And we've got to the end of this episode without killing each other. So our relationship is intact. There's always next week. Do you want to take us home? Yes. Thank you very much for listening. If you wish to leave us any feedback, you can do so at inthealespodcast at gmail.com. James, where can you find us on Instagram? In the Isles Podcast. Fantastic. Join us next week when we will be reviewing an unnamed film once again because the cinematic landscape continues to be a completely unknown beast. Are we not doing Enola Holmes? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the correction, James. See you next week. Look after each other. Don't kill each other. Bye.